Well, happy Father's Day for those of you to whom that um, is relevant. We used to, uh, when I was working at a church in uh, Indiana, it would always marvel us that Mother's Day would just be completely packed uh, because mothers on Mother's Day, what do they say? They want their whole family to come to church with them. Whereas fathers say, I want to go golfing. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's the case here, but um, it was just uh, funny that we have different ways of celebrating those days. You know that old joke about what's the one thing a, a father wants to get out of his car? His children. <laughs> oh, but I'm pumped. Well, John didn't want to lose himself. Friends that had invited him to church where he found himself faced with a radical decision. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, which we read today from Luke chapter 9, verse 23. For the first time, he understood that coming to Christ would mean coming to deny himself. There were so many parts of himself that he couldn't bear to lose. Hobbies, friends, his sense of humor, future plans. Who would he be if he surrendered them to Jesus? He thought of some of the Christians he knew. Nice, neat, bland. They seemed to dress their souls in beige every single day. He wondered if Jesus would flatten his personality, strip him of his identity. He feared with Friedrich Nietzsche that in heaven, all the interesting people are missing. John didn't want to lose himself. And so when he heard Jesus say, follow me, he walked away. Losing yourself has never been easy. The age has not yet come, nor will it ever, when self-denial will be convenient or taking up a cross comfortable. In our culture of expressive individualism and the modern sacred self, Jesus' call in this week's gospel stabs at the very heart at best, or at worst, sounds just culturally incoherent and stupid. Who will we be, after all, if we hand ourselves over to a Lord who demands all of us? There's a story that's told in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 4 of the Tower of Babel that has some relevance here, I think. It says, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Many in the world hear Jesus' call and fear that following him will destroy all that gives meaning to me. 
they'd prefer to keep their own identity, that self that they've been so meticulously cultivating for so many years. And so they stay in their little sh land of Shinar, adding bricks to their sacred self, building a tower to make a name for themselves. Since at least the 1960s, every voice in American life has told every American, be yourself. And that can feel like a liberating thing. But it does tend to chip immediately away at both responsibility and dependence. And I think that voice whispering in our ear constantly to be yourself is one way to think about why so much of life, particularly social media, has become not much more, not much more than a place to perform, a stage, rather than channeling our ambition and our power in the service of other people and of broader causes. And that culture of expressive individualism and the modern sacred self completely transforms religious life. The lure of self-expression is particularly challenging to our churches because they're not just a place to show the world who you are, nor should they ever be. They're a place you go to be formed and to, into a particular kind of person whom, according to Jesus, self-denial is the identifying mark. To understand our churches fundamentally as expressive, which many are doing today, actually guts them of the greatest service that they can perform in our lives, which is to transform our souls into the likeness of Christ. The logic and assumptions of the primacy of cultural self-expression make it very difficult, if not impossible, to think positively in terms of personal transformation, because personal transformation requires self-denial. And these are very different things. And because this is the cultural water we swim in, even in the church, and if you think about it, the ratio, if you have 168 hours in a week and you spend one hour in church, it's still 167 to one. And so since is, this is the cultural water we kind of unquestioningly, unquestioningly swim in, even in the church, many of us cannot help but succumb even unwittingly to our culture's obsession with a self-made self. Though we've ostensibly allowed Jesus to take a wrecking ball to our old selves, we often find ourselves walking wistfully among the ruins, even trying to raise little towers here and there. This is one of the reasons that we've added the first part of the first clause of the Heidelberg Catechism to the beginning of our prayers of the people, so that at least we would be reminded every week of the perilous cultural water we are swimming in. What is our only comfort in life and death, it asks, and answers that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. But still, not content to locate our identity simply in him, we often, or mostly, 
seek to be known by something else, something other, something entirely of our own making. And this is where it gets dangerous. Early last year, and I may have mentioned it here before, early last year I read Rod Dreher's excellent and disturbing book, Live Not By Lies. Dreher is a capital O Orthodox Christian who also wrote The Benedict Option and How Dante Saved My Life a few years ago. For years, he writes in Live Not By Lies, emigres from the former Soviet bloc have been telling me they see obvious signs of what they call soft totalitarianism taking root in America, something more Brave New World than 1984. He does a lot of work in the book to back that up, and it's not what you'd call a feel-good book. But it is meticulously documented and something hauntingly within the realm of possibility, within our culture's ever-expanding and demanding purity tests, forbidden and compelled speech, and constant demand at virtue signaling. Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said that one of the biggest mistakes people make in assuming totalitarianism, totalitarianism can't happen in their country, one of the biggest mistakes people make is assuming <laughs> sorry, totalitarianism can't happen in their country. He would know. And I think it's wise for us to be diligent, like the sons of Issachar in 1 Chronicles 12, to know the times so that we know what to do. Anyway, all of that piqued my interest and led me to then read The Origins of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt. Another not feel-good book, as you may be able to tell by the title, but illuminating. My point is not totalitarianism. Just wanted to let you know how I came to read Arendt's book. It was a journey, and it's not an easy read. Arendt was a young Jewish academic getting her PhD in philosophy when the Nazis came to power in 1933. She escaped Germany to France only to be rounded up for deportation to a concentration camp in 1940. She escaped that as well, barely, and made her way to America where she spent the rest of her life trying to understand what had happened. How had institutions and moral frameworks and basic decency collapsed so spectacularly? For the next 35 years, she wrote about the dynamics of movement, of movements, of, of mobs, of mass culture, the problem of evil, and all forms of tyranny. And reading her now, almost 50 years after she died, feels prescient. She saw indicators in our culture that make sense of a variety of shifts. Everything from the rise of authoritarianism and the rise of celebrity culture to the phenomenon of social media and the way ordinary life has become largely performative. For Arendt, the horrors of the first half of the 20th century were an outburst of deeper undercurrents that remained after the wars to end all wars were over. 
and one of the most significant of those undercurrents was loneliness. So many people in America have nobody, no one. They are utterly alone and they've lost the family, the faith, the work, all the structures that, that gave them a sense of being part of something, almost 30%. I mean, this is staggering. Almost 30% of Americans say they don't have even one friend outside of or inside of a family whom they trust with their secrets or talk to on an intimate level, not one. All of this is what Arendt calls mass loneliness or modern loneliness. I mean, lonely is obviously an old idea and people have always been lonely, but loneliness was generally confined to the periphery of life. Our general lives were not consumed by loneliness. And Arendt argues that with the rootlessness that accompanies the breakdown of, and, of traditions and religious faith and virtue, the increasing loss of a sense of place in the world, people are lonely at an unprecedented kind of existential level. And accompanying this sense of rootlessness and loneliness is a sense of restlessness. We can see this firsthand all around us. Whereas today we enjoy more expendable income and leisure time than any culture ever in history. And we have more in terms of access to art and literature or amusement, mindless entertainment, which is literally what the word amusement means. We have all of these things to keep us occupied. Our society still has this kind of enduring, simmering dissatisfaction. Nietzsche has a really interesting take on this because he would say that what we're actually talking about is decadence. Arendt talks about loneliness and, and rootlessness. She doesn't use this word, but Nietzsche uses the word decadence for the same thing. For him, that kind of decadence is almost entirely, and I, this blows my mind, is almost entirely a question of individual style or self-expression. It's performative. And this means that for most people, life no longer dwells within or is formed by the whole. And in that kind of decadence, there's an almost palpable sense that beyond expressive individualism, which we have become culturally addicted to, life has no ultimate meaning. And I believe this absence of ultimate meaning is nowhere more evident than in the mental health crisis we're currently experiencing in our country, especially among our young people. And this just has parents scared to death. And I don't use the word crisis hyperbolically. This from the New York Times, May 3rd, 2022, from an article called It's Life or Death the mental health crisis among U.S. teens. American adolescence is undergoing a drastic change, it says. Three decades ago, the gravest public health threats to teenagers in the United States came from binge drinking, drunken driving, teenage pregnancy, and smoking. These have since fallen sharply, replaced by a new public health concern. 
soaring rates of mental health disorders. In 2019, 13% of adolescents reported having a major depressive episode, a 60% increase from 2007. Emergency room visits by children and adolescents in that period also rose sharply for anxiety, mood disorders, and self-harm. And for people ages 10 to 24, suicide rates stable from 2000 to 2007 leapt nearly 60% by 2018, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The decline in mental health among teenagers was intensified by the COVID pandemic, but predated it, spanning racial and ethnic groups, urban and rural er areas, and the socioeconomic divide. In December, at a rate, at a rare public advisory, the U.S. Surgeon General warned of a quote-unquote devastating mental health crisis among adolescents, calling it a national emergency. We need to figure it out, he said because it's literally a matter of life or death for these kids. Now, interestingly, this correlates almost exactly with the just meteoric rise and triumph in the last decade, decade of expressive individualism and the modern sacred self as the highest good in our culture. Add to that the overwhelming negative pressure of social media and aggressive and absolutely uncontestable diversity, inclusion, and equity training in businesses and school systems. And from what I've read, I think Arendt and Nietzsche would not only see correlation, they would see causation. Kids especially being encouraged and expected to form themselves sounds like freedom, but is actually bondage, a weight far too heavy for them to bear, and a cultural recipe for disaster, as I believe we are experiencing. This is because the God who made us in his own image has not given us the power or ability to create a self that can flourish or even survive on its own. From the beginning, our true identity, who we are, has been tied to our creator, who he is. It says this in Genesis 1.27. I, we just read this last week. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. In a way, God created us to be like the moon, cold and barren on our own, but ablaze with light when we reflect the sun's glory. Any self that flees from God will eventually go dark. Those who give themselves over to themselves do not, in the end, become more interesting, more unique, or even more themselves. According to scripture, they become, as it says in Jude 10, like unreasoning animals. And in Psalm 32, 9, like a horse or a mule. In Psalm 49, 12, like the beasts that perish. The further we flee from the great, in C.S. Lewis's words, three personal God who created us, the more we forfeit our personhood. It says in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Anything we give ourselves to for our own sake and not for Christ, beauty, wealth, friendship, sex, food, comfort, power, all good things can eventually become our masters, defacing the remnants of that image that God placed on us. As it says in Romans 6, 16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you become the slaves of the one whom you obey. Sin is not just doing bad things. It's also making good things, ultimate things. Anyone who quips like Nietzsche that they'd rather be in hell with all the interesting people have no idea what they're saying. Hell will not be filled with interesting people, but rather with people who are barely recognizable. Because the more we pursue self-realization, the more we lose the self that God made us to be. We literally unself ourselves. And if we would find a self that will last forever, we must die to the search for a self apart from Christ. We will need to die to and repudiate excess or expressive individualism for the for the deception, for the lie that it is. We must die to the modern sacred self and we must entrust ourselves to the one who promises in Luke 9, 24 that whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We need, in the language of the apostles, to leave behind that old self, crucified with Christ, and embrace that new self, which Colossians 3.10 says is being renewed in the knowledge after the image, in knowledge after the image of its creator. And when we do, we will find that we are finally becoming the person God made us to be, more ourselves than we could ever have been on our own. Jesus is not interested in obliterating personalities of those who follow him. He does not aim to fill the kingdom of heaven with clones. He aims rather to renew ourself after the image of its creator, a creator who is not bare entity, but a glorious unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God who made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in it, is not a God of monotony, as any field of wildflowers can attest. He is the God of the orchestra and the dance who makes a world swirling and shimmering with diversity, yet held together in him. And when you finally give yourself up to him, you will become part of a grand whole, but not swallowed up, it says in Colossians 1.17. You will become a member of a worldwide body, but with a distinct part to play, it says in 1 Corinthians 12.12. You will become one among billions, but with your own note. To add to that colossal chorus, Revelation 5, 11 and 12, you will lose yourself when you give yourself up to Christ, but only those parts that deserve to be lost. The wood, hay and stubble Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3, 12, while retaining 
and adding gold, silver, and precious stones. You will no longer use yourself as the core of your identity, but will enjoy it as a gift from a kind God and gladly give yourself up to his service. You will no longer restrict your social circle only to those who really get you, but you will learn to love, really love the most unlikely. You will no longer plan a future around your own bucket list, but will begin to dream about how to seek the flourishing of your neighbors. Sure, parts of you will be burned away, but others will be refined and repurposed, and whole new parts of you will come alive. Die to yourself, and you will find the true you, Jesus says. Thanks be to God.